Hello there, dear listener. This is Brother Timothy Groover with another edition of The Word of the King. Today is August 29th, year of our Lord 2017. I would open up the Word of the King by reminding you that Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verse 4 says, Where the Word of the King is, there is power, and who may say unto him, what doest thou? And even so, I would now open up a word of prayer. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, come to you now, Lord God. And again, Father God, I ask you, dear Lord God, on behalf of everyone who is listening, dear Lord God, you would now, dear Lord God, touch this message, dear Lord God, as it pertains, dear Lord God, to the conversion and the life of that great saint of you, the living God, Martin Luther. And Father God, I just ask you, dear Lord God, even now, Lord God, that, Lord, if any unsaved souls be listening, dear Lord God, that you would use this, dear Lord God, to draw them all the more to the Savior, your spirit convicting of sin, judgment, and righteousness. As for any saints that are listening, Lord God, again, Lord God, that you would use this testimony concerning the life of Martin Luther to grant them all the more, as I pray they would desire, all the more, a boldness, which is as the boldness of a lion, your word says in the book of Proverbs, which... Your spirit, which your spirit working through Martin Luther, uh, so manifested, dude, or God in his days, resisting the world, the flesh, and the devil, the papacy, and all that it stood for. Even so, praise you, give you thanks, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, last time we left off, dear listener, with the life of Martin Luther, we were speaking of Luther's conversion, as it is written of and as it is recorded in Miller's church history. Andrew Miller. Andrew Miller, the author of Miller's Church History. This comes from Miller's Church History by Andrew Miller. Uh, in English, starting on page 713, we continue on with Luther's conversion. And it reads, From the strictness and abstemiousness of his monastic life, he became subject to fits of depression. On one occasion, overwhelmed with a sense of his own wretchedness and sinfulness, he locked himself up in his cell and for several days and nights refused to admit anyone. A friendly monk who knew something of the state of his mind burst open his cell and was alarmed to find him with his face on the ground and in a state of insensibility. He was, after some difficulty, restored by the sweet singing of a few Chorister boys, but he fainted again. The burden was still there. He required not the soft music of a hymn, but the sweeter music of the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And this, the mercy of God, was near at hand. I'm reminded, let me just jump in real quick here, listener, and I'm reminded as I read that right there, the account of Luther being overwhelmed with a sense of his own wretchedness. I'm reminded of how the Apostle Paul himself, writing under inspiration of God as it is written, Romans 7, 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? As surely as, surely as you're saved today, dear listener, I'm sure you've been there. If you've been saved for any amount of time, uh, you know what it means to cry out from your heart, and just, as it were, just say, oh, wretched man that I am, 
And we see Martin Luther. We see Martin Luther, just prior to his conversion, being overwhelmed with a sense of his own wretchedness and sinfulness. And even as the law of God is a schoolmaster that brings us to Christ, comes to us. What's it say in the book of Romans there? That the law was given. That sin might become exceedingly sinful. And thereby, as a schoolmaster, the law as a schoolmaster, bring us unto Christ. We might be justified by faith. The thou shalt and the thou shalt nots that were uttered from Mount Sinai, as you can read them there in the context of Exodus chapter 20. Continuing on, Luther and Stolpitz. John Stolpitz, whom the Lord sent to Luther with a message of mercy, was vicar general of the, of the Augustines for all Germany. Historians speak of him in the highest terms. Uh, real quickly, in case you're not aware, Senator Augustines, dear listener, in case you're not aware, Augustines, that's just a reference for disciples of a man by the name of St. Augustine. Continuing on, he, speaking of this John Stolpitz, was indeed of noble descent, says one, but he was far more illustrious through the power of his eloquence, the extent of his learning, the uprightness of his character, and the purity of his life. It is a matter of thankfulness and worthy of note to find such a godly man filling such an important office, even in the last stage of papal degeneracy. His influence was great and good. He possessed the esteem of Frederick the Wise, Elector of Saxony, who founded the University of Wittenberg under his direction. A visitation of this good man, the vicar general, to inspect the monastery at Erfurt, was announced just about the time when the anguish of Luther's mind had reached its height. The wasted frame, the melancholy appearance, yet the earnest, resolute look of the young monk attracted the attention of Stolpitz. From past experience, he knew well the cause of his dejection, and most kindly instructed and comforted him. He assured Luther that he was entirely mistaken in supposing that he could stand before God on the ground of his works or his vows, that he could only be saved by the mercy of God, and that mercy must flow to him through, the, through faith in the blood of Christ. Let your principal occupation be the study of the scriptures, says Stolpitz. And along with this good advice, he presented Luther with a Bible, which of all things on earth he most desired. Real quickly, dear listener, I would remind you it is written in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration through the Holy Ghost. Mercy has God not given us what we deserve. Death, hell, and eternity in the lake of fire. Regeneration. Regeneration has to do with the new birth or being born again as Jesus spoke of it in the context of St. John chapter 3. Continuing on. A ray of divine light had penetrated the dark mind of Luther. His conversations and correspondence with the vicar general greatly helped him, but he was still a stranger to peace with God. His bodily health again gave way under the conflicts of his soul. During the second year of his residence in the convent, he became so dangerously ill that he had to be removed to the infirmary. All his former terrors returned at the approach of death. He was still ignorant of the value of the finished work of Christ to the believer. So were his teachers. The frightful image of his own guilt and the demands of God's holy law filled him with fear, not being a commonplace man and passing through an experience which commonplace men could not understand. He was alone. He could not tell 
He could tell his griefs to none. One day, as he lay, overwhelmed with despair, he was visited by an old monk who spoke to him of the way of peace. Won by the kindness of his words, Luther opened his heart to him. The Venerable Father spoke to him of the efficacy of faith and repeated to him the article uh, in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. These few simple words with the Lord's blessing seem to have turned the mind of Luther from works to faith. He had been familiar with the form of these words from his childhood, but he had only repeated them as a form of words, like thousands of nominal Christians in all ages. Now they filled his heart with hope and consolation. The old monk, hearing him, repeating the words to himself, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, as if to fathom their death, interrupted him by saying that it was not a mere general, but a personal belief. I believe in the forgiveness, not merely of David's sins or of Peter's sins, but of my sins. Even the devils have a general, but not a personal belief. Hear what St. Bernard says, added to the, pi added the pious old monk. The testimony of the Holy Ghost to thy heart is this, thy sins are forgiven thee. From this moment divine light entered the heart of Luther, and step by step, through the diligent study of the word and prayer, he became a great and honored servant of the Lord. Reflections on the conversion of Luther. This is the simple story of Luther's conversion, and a genu genuine conversion it was through the grace of God. But so far as Luther's mind was concerned, it was not a very solid work. The measure and character of the truth presented by Stolpitz and the old monk could not have fortified him against the attacks of the enemy. With so little knowledge of the mind of God, the love of Christ, the completeness of his work, of deliverance through death and resurrection, a converted soul might soon be filled and harassed with doubts and fears. And this is what we find on all hands in the present day. Does that sound like you? Let me intercede here for a moment and interject a little bit, excuse me. Does that sound like you, dear listener? Does that sound like you? Let me read that again. With so little knowledge of the mind of God, the love of Christ, the completeness of his work, of divine deliverance, of deliverance through death and resurrection, a converted soul might soon be filled and harassed with doubts and fears. And this is what we find, continuing on now, and this is what we find on all hands in the present day. Very few have settled peace with God. They hope, they trust that they are saved, but there is very little of the full assurance of faith. And why? Just because of defective views of their own lost state and of the work Christ is as perfectly meeting that state. Take one text as an illustration. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Surely, if we rightly apprehended the dignity and the glory of the sufferer, what would our faith be in the value of his sacrifice, of his one offering? There is no repetition, no second application of the blood. It can never lose its efficacy. We may be daily cleansed with the blood of purification, but the idea of a second application of the blood of propitiation is unknown in Scripture. Once washed in that precious blood, the conscience is, conscience is perfect forever. That word forever means not so much eternally as continuously, permanently, uninterruptedly perfect before God, even as Christ always is. God can never overlook that which has so perfectly blotted out sin, so perfectly glorified himself, so perfectly vanquished every foe, and so perfectly obtained eternal redemption for every believer. Up till the time that Luther met with Stolpitz and the aged monk, he was, to use his own words, in the swaddling bands of popery and had not seen its evils. And this is true in a certain sense of thousands still. They are in the 
swaddling bands of their respective systems of doctrine and church standing, without having ever carefully examined these things by the word of God. Consequently, they are strangers to that happy liberty wherewith Christ makes his God, people free. Luther was converted, but he was by no means out of the house of bondage. The unswathing of his soul was, through unbelief, a slow process. He knew almost nothing of the privileges and blessings of the children of God and of their standing in Christ. But we know from Scripture what his blessings were and what the blessings are of every converted soul. Immediately the woman touched the hem of the Redeemer's garment. The fountain of her disease was dried up by the slender touch of faith. The virtue that was in Jesus was made her own. Beautiful illustrations of the newly converted soul standing before God and all the virtue, the excellencies, the life, the righteousness, the peace, the joy, the happy liberty of Christ himself. Eternal life has taken the place of spiritual death, divine righteousness of human sin, and nearness to God of moral distance. Such is the blessing of every soul, the first moment of its conversion, though it may be on the borders of despair from the darkness of its condition, as Luther was. Take another illustration. The penitent thief on the cross, a few moments after his conversion, he enters heaven with Christ as fitted for that holy place as Christ himself. Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. The immediate consequence of faith in Christ is meekness for the inheritance of the saints in light. See also Luke 23, verses 39 through 43, Mark chapter 5, verses 25 through 34, Colossians chapter 1, verses 12, 13, and 14. Luther, a priest and a professor. He had spent three eventful years in the cloister at Erfurt, but these years were not lost to him. The general cultivation of his mind, the discipline of his soul, his study of Hebrew and Greek, were so many branches of needed education for his future career in the Lord's service. Besides, it was the place of his spiritual birth, and the place where he first heard of justification by faith, that divine doctrine on which so much of his subsequent work was built. In the year 1507, he was ordained a priest, at which ceremony his father was present, though still dissatisfied with the course of his son. Luther had now received power from the bishop to offer sacrifice for the living and the dead and to convert, by muttering a few words, the unleavened cake into the real body and blood of the Lord. Luther submitted to and accepted these popish pretensions, though against his convictions, and with fear and trembling. But his soul never completely recovered from the effects of this blasphemous ordination. A judicial blindness as to the scriptural simplicity of the Lord's Supper settled down upon his mind, he was enabled by the grace of God to throw off and denounce many of Rome's superstitions, but never fully her crowning enormity, transubstantiation. Let me just make a real quick note here, dear listener. Concerning this matter of transubstantiation, or this Roman Catholic tradition of turning the physical bread or wafer into the literal body of Jesus and the wine or the uh, grape juice into the literal blood of Jesus, that's the Roman Catholic tradition known as transubstantiation and what they form in their tradition called the Mass. Jesus said in St. John 6, verse 63, The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. That one verse right there, that one verse right there in St. John chapter 6, in light of everything else Jesus said in St. John chapter 6, that one verse right there in St. John 6, verse 63, let me repeat it again, The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. 
Jesus himself said his flesh will do you no good, will do a person to sinner no good. That one verse right there in and of itself overthrows the Roman Catholic tradition known as the Mass and Transubstantiation as it's spoken of. Continuing on, Stolpitz, the faithful friend and patron of Luther, placed him at the age of 25 in a position suited for the display of his power and active mind and the further development of his character. He was invited by the Elector Frederick at the suggestion of this vicar general to occupy a chair of philosophy in his rising university. He removed to Wittenberg by the year 1508. But though called to be a professor, he did not cease to be a monk. He lodged in a cell in the Augustinian convent. The subjects on which he was appointed to lecture were the physics and dialectics of Aristotle. This was uncongenial employment for one who was hungering and thirsting after the word of God. Neither physical science nor moral philosophy suited the spirit of his mind. But again, we may say, it was part of his needed education. He who had passed through the cloister must now occupy for a time the chair of scholastic philosophy, that he might be better fitted to expose the evils and combat the errors of both systems and emancipate the minds of men from their influence. In the meantime, though he was attracting the youths of Wittenberg by the force and style of his lectures, he was zealously applying himself to the study of Greek and Hebrew. His desire was to drink at the fountain, and he who saw the great desire of his heart and the labor of his life opened up the way for him. In a few months after his arrival at the university, he obtained the degree of Bachelor of Divinity, which entitled him to lecture on theology or on the Bible. He now felt himself in his proper sphere and determined to communicate the only which he learnt from the Word of God. His first discourses were on the Psalms, and then he passed Paul's epistle to the Romans. His precious meditations on these portions in his quiet cell, both at Erfurt and Wittenberg, gave a characteristic to his lectures altogether new. He spoke, not merely as an eloquent schoolman, but as a Christian who felt the power of the great truths he taught. When he reached, in his exposition, the last clause of Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith, a light, we may say, beyond the brightness of the sun, filled his soul. The Spirit of God clothed the words with light and power to the understanding and to the heart of Luther. The grand doctrine of justification by faith alone he received into his heart was from the voice of God. He now saw that eternal life was to be obtained not by penance but by faith. Real quickly, dear listener, let me jump in and say Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing on. The whole story of the German Reformation is connected with these few words. In their light, he explained the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. By their truth, he exposed the falsehoods of popery. He thrilled the heart of Europe. He brought the reign of imposture to an end and accomplished the Great Reformation. Alone, he stood before all authority, before all the world, on the truth of the word of God, the just shall live by faith. God's word is true. Popery is a lie. The one must fall, the other must triumph. Truth is health to the soul. A lie is deadly poison. These principles of eternal righteousness were now firmly fixed in the heart of Luther by the Spirit of God, and simple as they may appear, he was enabled through faith in the Word of God to triumph over popes, bishops, clergy, kings, and emperors, raising the standard of salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ without works of law. The great work was now begun, but the workmen had still some lessons to learn. Luther visits Rome. 
Some disputes having arisen between the vicar general and several of the Augustinian monasteries, Luther was selected as a fit person to represent the whole matter before his holiness in Rome. It was necessary in the wisdom of God that Luther should know Rome. As a monk in the far north, he only thought of the Pope as the most holy father, and of Rome as the city of the saints, and these prejudices and delusions could only be dispelled by personal observation. Intelligence did not circulate then as now. In the year 1510, penniless and barefoot, Luther crossed the Alps. A meal and a night's rest, he begged at the monasteries of the farmhouses as he went along. But scarcely he had, had he descended the Alps when he had found monasteries of marble and monks feeding on the most sumptuous fare. All this was new and surprising to the frugal monk of Wittenberg. But when Friday came, what was his astonishment to find? The tables of the Benedictines groaning with dainty meats? He was so moved with indignation that he ventured to say, The church and the pope forbid such things. For this remonstrance, some say, he nearly atoned with his life. Having received a friendly hint to be off, he quitted the monastery, traveled through the burning plains of Lombardy, and reached Bologna. Dangerously ill, here the enemy turned his thoughts in upon himself, and he became greatly troubled with the sense of his own sinfulness. But the prospect of death filled him with fear and terror. The words of the apostle, the just shall live by faith like a ray of light from heaven, chased the dark clouds away, changed the current of his thoughts and restored his peace of mind. When returning strength, he renewed his journey. With returning strength, he renewed his journey. And after passing through Florence and toiling under an oppressive Italian sun through the long track of the Apennines, he at length drew near to the seven-hilled city. We must preface Luther's entry into Rome by reminding our readers that, though he had received the truth of the gospel, he was still a papist, and that his devotion to the papacy partook of the vehemence of bigotry. Rome to the rude German was the holy city sanctified by the tombs of the apostles, the monuments of saints, and the blood of martyrs. But alas, the Rome of reality was widely different from the Rome of his imagination. As he approached the gates, his heart beat violently. He fell on his knees, and with his hands raised to heaven, he exclaimed, Holy Rome, I salute thee, blessed Rome, thrice sanctified by the blood of thy martyrs. With all sorts of affectionate and respectful terms, he thus saluted the metropolis of Christendom. And, under the influence of this wild enthusiasm, he hastened to the holy places, listening to all the legends by which they are consecrated, and all that he saw and heard he most devoutly believed. But his heart was very soon sickened by the profanity of the Italian priest. One day, when... When he was repeating Mass with great seriousness, he found that the priest at the adjoining altar had already repeated seven Masses before he had finished one. Quick, quick, cried one of them. Send our lady back her son, making an impious allusion to the transubstantiation of the bread into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Profanity could scarcely reach a higher pitch. Luther's disenchantment was complete, and the purpose of God of his education was accomplished. Luther had expected to find in Rome an austere religion. Her brows circled with griefs, resting on the bare earth, quenching her thirst with the dew of heaven, clothed like the apostles, making her way along stony paths and the gospel under her arm. But in place of this, he saw the triumphant pomp of the pontiff, the cardinals in litters on horseback or in carriages, glittering with precious stones and covered from the sun by a canopy of peacock's feathers, the gorgeous churches and the more gorgeous rituals, and the pagan splendor of the paintings were to Luther, whose heart was heavy with thoughts of the priest's profanity, utterly unbearable. What was the Rome of Raphael, of Michelangelo, of Perugino, of Benvenuto, 
to the poor German monk who had traveled 400 leagues on foot, expecting to find out which would deepen his devotion and strengthen his faith. Yet such was the power of educational superstition in Luther, notwithstanding his knowledge of Scripture and his bitter disappointment in Rome, that one day, wishing to obtain an indulgence promised by the Pope to all who should ascend to their knees what is called pilot staircase, he was humbly creeping up those steps which he was told had been miraculously transported from Jerusalem to Rome. When he miraculous, when he thought he heard a voice, loud as thunder, crying, The just shall live by faith. Amazed, he rises from the steps up which he was dragging his body, ashamed it seemed to what a death superstition had plunged him. He flies with all haste from the scene of his folly. Having transacted the business on which he was sent, he turned his back forever upon the pontifical city. Adieu, Rome, he said. Let all who would lead a holy life depart from Rome. Everything is permitted in Rome except to be an honest man. He had no thought then of leaving the Roman church, but perplexed and troubled, he returned to Saxony. Soon after Luther's return to Wittenberg on the pressing solicitation of Stolpitz, he took the degree of doctor in divinity. The Senate also gave him the pulpit of the parish church, which opened up for him at once a spear of the, of the greatest usefulness. But Luther, alarmed at the responsibility, showed some reluctance to accept a dignity of such spiritual importance. As his friendly vicar sought to remove his scruples and press the service upon him, he submitted, and in the performance of his pulpit duties, he had the rare opportunity of preaching the word of God and the gospel of Christ in the cloisters of his convent, the chapel of the castle, and in the collegiate church. His voice, says history, was fine, sonorous, electrifying. His gesticulations were easy and noble. A bold originality ever marked the mind of Luther, charming many of its novelty, and overpowering others by respectable acquaintance both with Greek and Hebrew. He had read deeply the New Testament. He was fully assured that justification by faith was the peculiar doctrine of the gospel, that the word of God was the primary and fundamental means of the revival and reformation of the church. From the year 1512 to the memorable year 1517, Luther was a bold, trepid herald of the word of life. In all things, he longed only to know the truth, to shake off and cast from him the falsehoods and superstitions of Rome. And thus we leave Luther for the present, engaged in his glorious work, while we must refer for a few moments to the state of things in the church which brought John Tetzel and his indulgences into the neighborhood of Wittenberg. Okay, dear listener, that includes chapter 33 of Miller's Church History by Andrew Miller as it pertains to the life and the testimony of that saint of God, Martin Luther. So, dear listener, with just under three minutes to go, let me ask you, is the Spirit of God bearing witness with your heart that your sins are forgiven? Okay, we're not talking about, again, we're not talking about just saying some prayer every Sunday at church, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. No, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the Spirit of God. You can pray a prayer all you want. If you don't realize, if you don't understand, the just should live by faith. The just should live by faith, not by a prayer. See, that's the thing. Sinners who go to church every Sunday and pray, our Father which art in heaven, the Lord's prayers it's commonly called, and they think that makes them right with God, 
They're not living by faith. They're living by a prayer. So are you living by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? If you trusted in him alone, dear listener, the word of God says, but the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Thou shalt not commit adultery, Jesus said. said mentioned in the Ten Commandments there, thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus said in the context of the gospel, he had heard that it has been said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you, Whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Lust, 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 lust of the eyes. Whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Thou shalt not kill. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not steal. Honor thy father and thy mother. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Thank God for the good news. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Thank God it is written, therefore being justified freely by his grace. God given us that which we do not deserve. We have obtained redemption through our Lord Jesus Christ. Whom God hath set forth for a propitiation. Through faith in his blood. Through faith in his blood for the remission of sins. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his shed blood alone, dear sinner. And may the words ever thunder. The spirit of God bear witness with your spirit. Your sins are forgiven. The just shall live by faith. Jesus is alive and well. Call upon him today. This has been another edition of the word of the king. Till next time, this is Brother Timothy Gruber saying, God bless you and yours.